Good day and welcome to today's program. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. The information and views conveyed by Energy Intelligence on this call shall not be considered as advice, recommendation, representation, or endorsement, and should not be relied on in connection with any business or investment decision. Any use of such information by any person or organization is at such persons or organizations' sole risk. Please note that this call may be recorded. I will be standing by if you need any assistance. It's now my pleasure to turn the conference over to Mr. Jim Washer. Please go ahead. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to today's Energy Intelligence Virtual Roundtable. My name is Jim Washer. I'm Executive Editor with Energy Intelligence, and it's my pleasure to be your host for today's discussion, M&A Outlook, Who's Selling, Who's Buying? So we're going to be looking at prospects for mergers and acquisitions, who needs to sell, who needs to buy, what, where deals might happen. And it has overall been a fairly quiet couple of years on this front in the oil patch. Usually when prices weaken, as they did from 2014 onwards, some consolidation is to be expected. But beyond the Shell BG deal, there have been few eye-catching transactions, certainly involving the big international majors, reflecting, some say, uncertainties over price direction, over shale, over what even constitutes a good deal these days. Last month, though, we saw Total spend nearly $7.5 billion on mask oil. We also saw the CFC deal with Rosneft. So this is perhaps a good moment to look at whether these are deals that are going to open the doors to further M&A activity or whether they're one-offs reflecting the sort of strategic needs of the companies involved. So for today's discussion, I'm joined by two of my U.S. colleagues, Monica Enfield, Director with Energy Intelligence's Research and Advisory Team, and Noah Brenner, Senior Corporate Reporter and Deputy Bureau Chief for Energy Intelligence down in Houston. Monica, Noah, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you. So, Monica, if I can start with you. The watchword for the majors in the downturn has been capital discipline, and with a few exceptions, they've been more interested in selling than buying assets. So do you think this Total Mares deal, for example, could mark a change in that outlook and a revived interest in acquiring upstream assets? Well, I think you're certainly right. Capital discipline, along with demonstrating value and working towards greater cash flow generation, these are the key drivers for the majors right now. And I think these drivers are likely to remain regardless of a near-term price expectation. So for that reason, I don't think we can expect to see a uniform, you know, wholesale interest in acquiring upstream assets from across the peer group right now. I think rather the Total and Mare steel represents kind of a continuation of these selective deals. I mean, you could even argue that it's a bolt-on asset deal. So, you know, the companies are very mindful of debt accumulation and capital outlays. It's really important to remember that the Total deal was an all-paper share and debt deal, and it's paying nothing in cash. Uh, BP's deal for a 10% stake in ADCO last December was also structured to limit upfront capital outlays. So I'm not entirely convinced right, right now that there's a real change in the outlook, uh, especially with so many of these majors working to, you know, fulfill their divestment programs. But, you know, we will continue to see strategic and selective deals take place. Okay. So um, if that's the kind of deal we can expect, let's turn to you, Noah. I mean, who needs to buy? What gaps and weaknesses do we see in the majors' portfolios? Well, I mean, I think broadly the majors are struggling with, with the same shift that industry is sort of grappling with right now as a whole, which um, is the shift from, from volume to value. And so broadly the weakness in their, in their portfolios are, are cost and, and securing low-cost uh, opportunities. 
you know, they're coming to terms with the fact that not all the reserves are, are created equal and their large reserve bases in some cases are not, um, not that attractive at today's prices. So they have lots of oil, but how much is low cost? Um, looking company by company, uh, as Monica had mentioned, we've seen uh, BP was active. They have added some low cost oil, but they've also added a lot of gas and gotten out of some rank exploration. Um, you know, BP has long sort of been seen as needing some sort of uh, US onshore acquisition. Their portfolio there is very gassy and uh, for the size of the, the operation um, could certainly use some additional liquids volumes there. Shell, you know, they added a lot of resources in the BG deal and they've rationalized uh, their portfolio quite a bit. One interesting area for them could be the Permian Basin. Again, they've got um, a footprint there, it's 300,000 acres. You know, I'm not sure whether, I, I, a lot of people sort of see that as, as an area where they would maybe either need to add to it to add some scale or divest it and take advantage of, of high asset prices there. Um, Exxon particularly needs low-cost liquids. Uh, much of their reserve replacement has been in natural gas. Uh, their production has been declining and the Permian you know, would be an obvious um, possible place for them to look, but in general, low-cost liquids. Chevron is, is definitely in a different position. Uh, they've had big, pro, you know, major um, long lead projects rolling off and are, that are now beginning to produce cash. And they have a lot of short cycle opportunities, but anything they would need to add would have to compete with their Permian Basin position, which is about a million and a half acres of very, very low cost, um, low or no royalty uh, acreage there. And so they're probably not seen as needing to acquire necessarily, but it, it's very possible that they would look to consolidate within the Permian. And then you've got Total, which has been uh, opportunistic, uh, in, as you mentioned, with the Maersk deal, um, and has, has kind of been contrarian in a way. I mean, it's a, it's a bit hard to predict, um, or harder to predict. But I think you could see them take advantage of maybe some opportunities uh, that would present themselves in Angola or the Gulf of Mexico, um, or there is U.S. gas. Uh, they had picked up Chesapeake's remaining position in the Barnett uh, earlier this year, or I guess late last year. Um, so kind of a broad set of opportunities out there, but really everything uh, revolves around the cost structure and the ability to break even at, at today's uh, prices or, or strip. Okay, thanks. That's a really good run through of, of where there might be sort of gaps that companies look to fill. Um, you mentioned cost structure, Monica, just to turn to you again, you also referred to capital discipline earlier and there's a sense you know, that the majors have been struggling to break even at, at $50 a barrel. So let's look at this. Who can actually buy? Do the majors have sufficient financial slack? And if they don't, who else could enter the fray? Okay. Well, yeah, good question. I mean, there is a bit, but there's certainly not enough financial slack right now. I mean, the group has only nominally turned the corner, so to speak, on cash flows after several really tough quarters. So, you know, without going into detail of all individual balance sheets, I think the, the super majors will need to remain cautious as they evaluate potential deals. Um, I mentioned the prior Total and BP deals, but there's also been similarly structured deals con concluded by ExxonMobil as well. So, you know, you, you look at these uh, deals where they didn't have to pay out cash, but from a shareholder concern, they're also worried about shrinking premiums and share dilution when it comes to their dividends. So I think that's another consideration that companies will keep in mind as they look at, you know, buying options. Um, on your question of who can buy, 
I think Noah did a great job, you know, outlining some of the some of the strategic gaps. And you know, I just would have to say the obvious that ExxonMobil certainly has capacity in terms of its very large treasury position to pursue deals. But even there, they've signaled a, a degree of caution because they've only recently acknowledged that they may, you know, they they pay overpaid for XTO. So I think outside of the super major peer group, we, we still can look at some of the independents like Anadarko, Marathon Oil, BHP, and Woodside to be in a position to pursue deals. Um, in the case of BHP, even though this is a company that has a very large divestment mandate at the moment to sell its U.S. shell properties, um, BHP still sees value in a petroleum business, and they do anticipate growth from conventional resources. Um, they've really structured... Uh, their uh, portfolio around three deep water plays, the Gulf of Mexico, Caribbean, and Australia's Northwest Shelf. So I think it could, you know, pursue additional deals that deepen that strategy. Uh, Woodside, you know, this is another firm that's been on the lookout for the right type of deal for a long time. Uh, it got burned in 2015 trying to make this transformational deal. And, you know, after that, they've just pursued kind of very these select asset uh, deals like in Senegal. So I think those types of deep water discovery deals may be a better fit for certain types of companies. Um, another market investor may be this second tier of Chinese firms. Uh, you mentioned earlier the CEFC China Energy deal uh, for Rosneft. You know, that's a real breakout deal for the company. And, you know, we could see more activity by this company and others like it in the absence of a stronger M&A presence by the uh, major three Chinese NOCs. Okay, thanks. That's a very interesting point about the second tier um, Chinese firms. Um, okay, Noah, back to you. If, if we look at the M&A market at the moment, what sort of assets are on offer? And where might we expect to see some asset churn and some consolidation? Um, building off what Monica had been speaking with with regard to, to deep water, there, there are certainly pre-FID discoveries available and, um, you know, I'll say wildcat farmings, but, you know, not necessarily rank wildcats. I mean, these are uh, prospects that have been worked up um, from the geology side of things. Uh, they're available both in frontier basins as well as in, in more established areas, such as the Gulf of Mexico, um, you know, one area within the Gulf, you might look to something like the Cobalt portfolio, which is uh, has a data room open and, and has definitely a, a good number of companies have kicked the tires on that. Um, it's got a number of pre-FID discoveries that are oil-driven and, and could potentially be brought across the finish line by, uh, by a company coming in. Uh, you know, if you look broadly at, at Canada, we've sort of seen the redomestication of that entire industry. Um, it hasn't been the majors buying, it's been the majors selling, but there's certainly been a lot of asset churn there, and I think some of that uh, could continue. I don't necessarily see majors waiting in there as buyers, though. Um, one area that I think is particularly interesting is Alaska, where we've seen a number of at least very large headline discoveries of fairly conventional oil onshore. Um, it certainly takes a lot of infrastructure development, but is, is pretty straightforward development. And these discoveries have been done by very small companies and oftentimes with programs that were driven by Alaska's tax structure, and that those tax incentives have gone away. And so you've got large discoveries in the hands of smaller companies that no longer have the tax incentives that they had previously. I think that could be one area where we could see companies um, 
come in that maybe are already up in Alaska. There's certainly a lot of opportunities in shale. I think we're going to touch on that later uh, later on in the call, but that's in terms of the number of assets that are on offer, shale is probably one of the largest uh, areas. And then there's anybody that can that can get into some some of the easier conventional uh, oil that's out there. You know, in the Middle East, we've seen Shell backing away from Iraq. Uh, maybe there are some opportunities there for a company to step in, Iran bringing investors. Um, but those are are probably a little bit maybe harder to predict. Um, I know Monica, you had looked at uh, at some North Sea opportunities on offer with RNA recently. Yeah, I think um, you know. It's really easy to write off the North Sea, but, you know, as this mature, costly, declining oil and gas province. But we have seen a pretty strong revival in M&A activity since the oil price downturn. There's been at least a dozen major deals, each over, uh, you know, $500 million each, and about $16 billion in total value uh, in the region. So a lot of this is, is selling activity driven by the large integrated majors. They're looking to divest their non-core uh, mature producing assets in the basin, and I, you know, the Shell deal earlier, uh, uh, earlier this year. You know, this is a good example of selling off your UK North Sea assets, but retaining exposure to new growth projects, for example, in the west of Shetland. Um, at the same time, we're also seeing utilities. Uh, they face a range of strategic challenges in European markets. So you have companies like Dong and Engie that are opting to just divest out of the upstream business. Um, really what the appeal is, is for buyers to get assets at the bottom of the price cycle. And it's not, not so much that they're looking at the production reserve growth potential, but more focused on and, and cutting costs to maximize value. Again, that maximizing value <laughs> mantra. Um, private equity has moved into this region as well, and they're backing a bunch of new firms like Sticker Point, Seacar Point, which acquired OMB's uh, UK portfolio. Cryosaur, which purchased assets from Shell. And we also had uh, Carlisle Energy back a new company called Neptune Energy, uh, and that is uh, agreeing to pick up NG's stake in the EMP business for $3.9 billion. So certainly a lot of activity in this region as well. Thanks. I hope we got some listeners in from Stavanger and Aberdeen. I'm sure they'll be thrilled to hear what you have to say about the North Sea there, Monica. Um, okay. Um, Let's, um, no, I was going to go back to you now. There's, you, you mentioned um, shale in this sort of, um, you know, where we could see deals sort of um, perspective. And we also, you, know, you mentioned earlier about certain majors who could do with sort of adding some uh, some weight in that area. I mean, are there opportunities in U.S. shale for the majors to expand their portfolios? Are there shale producers with attractive portfolios who are looking vulnerable, do you think? Yes, definitely. It's been, you know, we've we've sort of long speculated about the uh, the desire of majors to get get into the Permian or expand their positions in the Permian. Um, I think this is a time. I think we're coming up on a, a pretty active time for consolidation within the Permian Basin specifically, but potentially across some of the other shale plays as well. One of the things. I think is most interesting is we're starting to see, you know, some of the sell side analysts are putting out some research and, and, and some things looking at uh, the cash flow profiles, particularly of the Permian pure play companies. And those cash flow profiles are, are improving quite a bit or looking actually somewhat attractive. Um, you know, some are estimating you can see 10% growth uh, beginning in 2020 with 6% free cash flow yield, and this is that strip. Um, and at the same time, Permian stocks uh, equity prices have declined, 
Some of it was based on some uh, GOR, gas-oil ratio concerns, uh, which we've reported on quite a bit, uh, as well just some, I guess, performance stumbles and, and worries about inflation. And so, you know, Permian stocks have been down about 15% since the second quarter earnings, so valuations are looking much better. And by some accounts, the return on investment for Permian pure play companies is actually better than that of the majors. And now, you know, calculating return on investment is always um, oftentimes as much an art as a science, I think, depending on what you throw into that, that pot. But uh, broadly, these companies are looking much more attractive to large oil companies that need to maintain dividend, that are concerned about cash flow, and that want to you know, show value over volume. And so I think we're coming up on a time that, that uh, these companies could be really attractive. Looking at some specific assets, um, the BHP position in the Permian is drawing a lot of interest from who I'm speaking with. It's a core Delaware position around Reeves County. It's not clear whether BHP would sell it on its own. In fact, it's, it's generally seen as they, they may not. Um, and they also have a lot of assets as well in their shale portfolio in the Fayetteville, the Haynesville, the Eagleford that are not uh, seen as attractive. Um, but that BHP position is one to keep an eye on because it, it's very um, split up. It's kind of checkerboard. And the companies that offset that position are Anadarko and Shell. And both of them could potentially go in and realize some synergies with long laterals uh, off this, this offset acreage. And so I think those are two companies that it would make a lot of sense for them to, to try to acquire that BHP position, and they could potentially justify paying a premium. Um, I mean, some people have estimated that that could go for over $6 billion if they were willing to sell it on their own. Um, I think another one to keep an eye on in the is a, a small U.S. independent called Energen. They have a pretty significant Midland Basin portfolio. It's upwards of 300,000 acres, and it butts up to companies including ExxonMobil. Um, Energen has a, a couple activist investors that have been agitating for the company to put itself up for sale or to find some sort of strategic transaction to unlock value. Um, that would be a company that I would be keeping an eye on uh, over the next year or so. But even outside the Permian, there's, there are definitely opportunities. There are a number of private equity companies that haven't been able to uh, go ahead with their IPOs. Looking specifically at the Haynesville, you've seen companies like Covey Park or Vine Oil and Gas that have not been able to move ahead due to market conditions. Potentially, we could see one of those companies um, sell out to a strategic buyer. Uh, it was similar to, to some of the things we've seen in the Permian, say, a couple years ago, where companies run a dual track, and they more or less are for sale, um, or they can to either a, a public market or to a strategic buyer. Another place to look at might be the stack play. Um, in terms of IPOs that, that haven't yet happened, there's a company up there called Tapstone, that has a large position in the sort of merging western portion of the stack. Again, they were looking at an IPO, but that has, hasn't gone ahead yet because of market conditions. And then finally, we've seen consolidation in the Appalachian Basin, really on a peer-to-peer -peer sort of U.S. independence buying each other. I'm thinking here on the EQT rights deal, as well as just some kind of general asset churn between the independents and private equity groups. It's an area where if a, a major or super major wanted to get really good exposure to uh, low-cost U.S. natural gas, there are certainly assets that are available there or companies that uh, potentially could, could be interested in doing a deal. 
Okay, thanks. That is very interesting. A lot of good detail there on, on prospects in the US in particular. Um, okay, at this point, why don't we see if we've got any questions uh, from our audience. At this time, if you would like to ask a question, you may do so by pressing the star and one on your touchtone telephone. If at any point you find your question has been answered, you may remove yourself from the queue by pressing the pound key. Again, star and one to ask a question. Okay. Uh, now, while we're waiting, um, Monica, if I can just turn to you again. I wanted to ask as well about sort of smaller scale types of asset, tra asset transactions, farm outs, farm ins, luxury acreage. I mean, this seems to have been in a sort of decline in this type of deal, uh, I guess, reflecting, um, you know, cuts in exploration budgets. Do you think that's still broadly the case, or are we expecting to see a pickup in this kind of farm in, farm out activity? Mm -hmm. No, not yet. Uh, farm, farm in and farm out activity is still very much muted. Uh, most of the activity we're seeing in this you know, specific asset segment are companies actually relinquishing acreage as they face uh, drill or drop decisions. Over the past year, we've seen a lot of regular license churn in the U.S. Gulf of Mexico, offshore Australia, and some of the select uh, you know, frontier plays. Um, there are certainly a number of smaller firms that need to bring in exploration partners, uh, but as you said, with lower exploration budgets across the board and, you know, this general move to the era of abundance and focusing on value, we aren't seeing the buyers and sellers linking up too often in this particular area. Um, the exception is for areas with recent discoveries like Senegal, Mauritania, offshore Egypt, offshore uh, Mexico. Here we're seeing both an increase in deals for equity and discovered assets, as well as farmlands for adjacent exploration acreage. Okay. Um, let's see if we have any questions in yet from the audience. Currently we have no questions, but again, that is star and one. Okay. All right. Thank you. Um, just one other thing I was going to ask as well, uh, Monica, just to turn to you again. I mean, it's, uh, looking at, you know, we, we talked about M&A. Uh, let's look at other, you know, kind of opportunities for acquiring assets and acreage licensing rounds I'm thinking of. We have rounds coming up in Mexico and Brazil and other places. How would you assess industry sentiment at the moment towards such opportunities? I would say that investor sentiment towards both Mexico and Brazil seems to be quite strong right now. Uh, for Mexico, the upcoming offshore rounds and the Pemex farm out opportunities are really, are there, we expect to see some high level participation just like we saw in the December 2016 deep water round. There we had winners uh, ranging from the largest IOCs, including all the super majors, as well as Luke Oil, ENI, and Reptile, to several NOCs and smaller EMPs like Petronas, Equipetrol, and, and Karen Energy. So even outside of the most prized deep water acreage that's closest to the U.S. border, we're already seeing an uptick in drilling activity, uh, a number of exploration wells and appraisal drilling underway. Uh, we've already seen Talos, the Talos-led consortium, announce a major find at the Zama One well, and ENI is advancing the it's appraisal activity block one. And, you know, this is being reflected in some of the, you know, movement moving, uh, we expect to see forward, going forward. CNUC is looking for a farm-in partner for the block it one uh, in the Perdido area. So I think, you know, with the rounds, uh, the, the Pemex farm out uh, opportunities and just others seeking farm-in partners, I think we'll see ENI, Total, BP, 
Petronas, Ecopetrol, and, and certainly others, be factoring Mexico in as part of their near-term near acreage capture strategy. And in Brazil, we have 287 uh, post-salt uh, fields and eight pre-salt fields on auction this month and next. And this is a real, you know, diverse set of opportunities for investors. And I think critically, this round will demonstrate Petrobras's willingness to allow other firms uh, to operate in strategic pre-salt areas now that it's not the mandated operator. Now, we wouldn't, you know, normally look at pre-salt as this kind of low-cost asset uh, relative to other types of assets um, that are prized right now, but, you know, Brazil does hold a certain appeal because these offshore projects are often executed through multi-stage produ production units, and that really speaks to this, you know, emphasis on short cycle or phased project development and, and deriving value creation from that. Now, there certainly are doing there are risks to doing business in Brazil, whether it's local content capacity concerns, local taxation, and just the lingering impact of the car wash scandal on politics. But you know, we've already seen Statoil, Total, and Shell uh, pursue strategic partnerships with Petrobras. Um, so I think that you know these companies do see major upside in the country. And then on the coattails of this, we also recently had Uruguay launch an offshore bid round, uh, its first since 2012. Uh, during that round, BP, Total, and BG, now Shell, uh, picked up the bulk of licenses. Now, they didn't have too much exploration success, but this time the government is making more seismic data available to bidders, and they're offering a exploration-only contract as opposed to an exploration production contract. So this will encourage, hopefully, uh, new types of investors. Okay, thank you. That's a good run through some things to keep an eye on, particularly in Brazil. Um, we are nearly out of time, but I'll just check if we have a question uh, from a listener. We can probably squeeze one in if we have one. We do have one question, sir. Uh, Sean Beecroft, please go ahead. Oh, yeah. Sean, your line is open. Sorry, my phone was on mute then. Um, just the question had been, uh, as we're looking at, as you talked about, a uh, number of the majors are cash-strapped, um, but there are some complementary positions. Do we look at the majors as being nimble enough to uh, potentially swap complementing areas, uh, such as um, you, we mentioned BP, BHP may have some synergy with some other people there where they need to core up and then just swap for something outside of the region? Or do we think that majors are not going to be nimble enough to take advantage of that at this point in time? Okay. Thanks, John. That's probably um, a question for Noah. So this is really looking at the majors. There's an opportunity here, as we've, we've heard a bit uh, today, for some, some movements on acreage where there's sort of neighboring acreage that could be attractive and can be added to portfolios. But do the majors uh, have the nimbleness to really pull this kind of thing off? Noah, what are, you, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Um, looking at, at acreage swaps and just making sure I understood your question correctly, you mean um, would would they be able to do swaps within within the basin, or were you talking swapping something from one basin to another? One basin, one basin to to another. Already the inner basin swaps I think are occurring, but I think the, yeah. the bigger opportunities are going to be out between basins. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's a good question. Definitely swaps within the basin are occurring and are, are common, and the majors are doing well at blocking up their, their positions there, I think, uh, you know, as well as their independent counterparts in, in a lot of ways. In terms of swapping between basins, it's not something that I've heard discussed. 
necessarily. I mean, I think they would be more likely to to just go in and, and make an asset acquisition uh, if if there was a specific area that they were looking at. You know, there are certain tax implications. You can do sort of 1031 exchange stuff. Um, which would allow them to sell assets in, in one area as, as long as they recycle that money back into another asset um, somewhere else. They wouldn't have to pay uh, some of the taxes from the capital gains on that. But um, I don't see a broad move to, to engage in sort of this basin for that basin um, type of trades. I think the valuations are, are just too difficult. It's difficult enough to come up with a valuation for an asset when you're trying to, to do either a cash or an equity type of deal, um, to be able to come to an agreement on the, the separate valuation of two different assets and swap them, I think is probably difficult. Okay, thanks, Bill. I hope that was a helpful answer to that question. Um, we are kind of out of time now, I'm afraid. Um, so it really just remains for me to thank everyone who's listened in. And of course, uh, thank Noah and Monica for sharing uh, some time and their thoughts with us today. Um, our next virtual roundtable will not take place until November. That is because next month we'll be busy hosting with our partners, the New York Times, our annual Oil and Money Conference in London. Uh, if you haven't booked to attend yet, please visit our website, www.oilandmoney.com, for details of the program and how to register. It's a great conference, lots of good speakers this year, including Patrick Brionet of Total. Uh, BB's Bob Dudley, OPEC Secretary General Mohamed Balkindo, and also for the first time an extra third day devoted solely to gas and LNG. Um, details of our next VRT will appear on our website www.energyintel.com at the beginning of November, so please back, check back in then. Until then, thank you very much and goodbye. <laughs>